Hello and welcome to Season 5, Episode 1 of Employment Law Matters with me, Barrister Daniel Barnett. It's the 20th of September 2022. We have a new Prime Minister since Season 4 ended back in June and we still have very little on the legislative agenda for employment law. Now, this season, like the last few, is 10 episodes long, with an episode coming out every Tuesday, except we're also going to have a bonus episode for you, which I'll tell you about in a moment. We deal with all matters, employment, law, and HR. Most of my guests are practitioners who are at the coalface of HR practice and employment tribunal litigation, and they share their experience, their tips, and their knowledge. This episode is about harassment. But before I introduce my guest, let me give you a little taster of what you've got coming up over the next couple of months. After the very popular episodes, A Day in the Life of a Regional Employment Judge and A Day in the Life of an HR Consultant that we've done in recent series, we've got coming up for you A Day in the Life of a Trade Union Official with Tristan Ashby, the Chief Executive of the Firefighters Union and a day in the life of a law centre advisor with Audrey Ludwig, the director of Suffolk Law Centre. Simon Stephen from Gowling WLG is joining me to discuss grievances about grievances. And my regular guest, Michael Salter, is coming on in Season 5, Episode 10, to talk about stupid tribunal applications. That's going to be a good one. Plus five other guests who you'll find out about over the coming weeks. I'll also be asking all 10 guests from all 10 episodes for their tips on well-being, and we'll be collating those for a bonus episode at the end of the season. All that and lots more to come. I also want to thank Didlaw and also Recruitment HR for supporting this season and making it possible for me to bring leading practitioners into your ears. You'll hear more about Didlaw and Recruitment HR later in the episode. Before we start, you might have seen some emails from me about the Virtual Employment Law Academy. It starts on the 11th of October, 2022. I'll be teaching employment law via Zoom to the level of an undergraduate law degree, and the course carries a nationally recognized and certified CPD qualification. If you're an HR professional, enrolling in the Virtual Employment Law Academy means you'll save on legal fees because you'll be able to advise your board about more aspects of employment law rather than hiring an expensive lawyer for the questions you'll now be able to answer. You'll help your business avoid costly reputational damage by identifying risks before they become a problem. You'll be able to reduce the financial implications of any employment tribunals brought against your organization. You'll be able to ask better quality questions of any dedicated legal advisor you need to use and push back where necessary and so reduce the cost of their services. And most importantly for you, you've just become more valuable to your employer and so you can justify salary increases and promotions. You'll be called upon to advise the senior team even more, gaining their trust and confidence with your deeper levels of knowledge and expertise. Enrollment closes in just under three weeks, and you can find out much more at www.virtualemploymentlawacademy.com. www.virtualemploymentlawacademy.com. Welcome to Employment Law Matters with Barrister Daniel Barnett. 
Today I'm joined by Paul Livingston, who has spoken in the past at one of my series of 30 employment webinars on harassment. He was so good, so knowledgeable, that I wanted to bring him back to speak about it some more, and this podcast is the ideal way to do it. Paul is a barrister at Outer Temple Chambers, specialising in employment, discrimination and public inquiries. He's regularly instructed to advise or represent individual employees, as well as large companies, public sector organisations and charities. Paul is currently instructed on behalf of about 44,000 claimants in the landmark ASDA Equal Pay litigation, the largest ever such claim against a private employer. That case went to the Supreme Court in June 2020 and it remains ongoing. In public inquiries, Paul is currently working as counsel to the Brookhouse Inquiry regarding the mistreatment of immigration detainees, and he's also just started work as counsel to the COVID-19 public inquiry. The million-dollar question when I was thinking about this topic for me is, is it harassment or harassment? Paul Livingstone, what do you think? Good morning. Good morning, Daniel. Um, well, given my accent, I'm never confident that I'm pronouncing anything correctly, but I definitely say harassment, but that could just be a combination of Scottish and English. <laughs> I generally find I, I, I fluctuate between the two. So if I'm in a tribunal, even more embarrassingly, if, if I'm doing my, my radio show, uh, sort of in the middle of a sentence, I'll call it harassment and then harassment the next sentence. And I'm thinking to myself, how can anyone take what I say seriously when I don't even know how to pronounce the word? Is it just me or, or does everyone think that? I think we need a government consultation on this, getting uh, proper responses from, from the population with a, a proper focus on the Scottish response, which will inevitably be the correct way of pronouncing it. Well, so my, my phenomenal uh, preparation for this interview, for this chat, um, consisted of me looking up the definition of harassment in the dictionary this morning and pretty much nothing else, largely because I've actually, I've just been to the dentist this morning for a, for a filling. So if you hear me slurring my words, it's not because I'm drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. It's because I've been pumped full of local anaesthetic. But the one bit of prep I did do for this is um, I looked up the dictionary definition of harassment. And in the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, harassment is defined as, quote, aggressive pressure or intimidation. But the legal definition is different to that, isn't it, Paul Livingston? Yeah, I, I think there is sometimes with, with some of these uh, words that are defined in legislation, a disconnect between the way that the general population understands them and what we as employment lawyers or HR professionals understand them to mean. And that can be a problem because uh, I'm sure everyone practicing in this area has cases where employees have come to them saying, I've been harassed at work, I want to bring a claim against my employer for harassment. And then we have to say to them, that's not actually, you know, what you're telling me sounds bad and it sounds like you might have been bullied or subject to some bad treatment, but that's not what harassment means. And then you need to explain what harassment means because harassment under the... Equality Act, which is the main context in which we uh, talk about it in, in, in employment law, has to mean that there's conduct related to a protected characteristic. And that's the thing which separates it from any conduct outside of the, the workplace. So I'm, I'm just going to read out the definition just in case anybody doesn't know it. It's from section 26 of the Equality Act. And Harassment is defined as being unwanted conduct related to a protected characteristic, which has the purpose or effect of either 
violating the claimant's dignity or creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating, or offensive environment. I always think the parliamentary draftsman had a thesaurus open when they wrote that definition. But that's a, a pretty long definition. The unwanted conduct has to have the purpose or effect of creating an intimidating, hostile, blah, blah, blah environment. How, Paul Livingston, do you approach the analysis of whether the manager's or the colleague's conduct had that necessary effect? Yeah, I think that's another thing which um, is probably the thing which surprises people most about how harassment works. Because there's those two possibilities, as you said, Daniel, there's purpose or effect. So I think most people, when they think about harassment, think about the idea of it needing to be intended to cause, you know, to violate someone's dignity or create an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating, etc. environment. But that's only one possibility. That's the purpose. And actually, in my experience, that's almost never the case. I mean, I'm sure there are cases where people have said or done things in order to create that sort of horrible environment for people or to violate their dignity. But for one thing, those cases usually settle before they get to us. And for another thing, it's quite difficult to prove that someone intended to create that sort of environment. And so what ends up happening is the vast majority of these situations focus on the effect. So it doesn't matter what the perpetrator of the conduct of the potential harassment intended to do or wanted to do or even thought they were doing what matters is the impact on the recipient of that conduct and so that means that you have to look first of all at what happened the conduct itself and then the really important thing that people often forget about is you have to look immediately at how it made that person feel so although one can sound a bit like a therapist when you're asking questions like this Actually, the first question that anyone taking a statement from a claimant, uh, whether you're an employer or a lawyer, needs to be is how did they make you feel at the time? And one of the difficulties with that is people are terrible at remembering how things made them feel at the time, especially if something was a course of conduct that you know, there was lots of different instances that happened over a year or something. It's really difficult to remember how you felt a year ago other than a general feeling that this was all uncomfortable and I felt awful about it, etc. So that's one of the reasons why, because the how it made you feel is so important, my first piece of advice to anyone who's subjected to any sort of uh, treatment that they think might be harassment is write down when it happened, how it made you feel, whether in an email to yourself, whether in a note, whether in an online tool, write it down because you'll forget otherwise. So the Equality Act actually has a little section in it, a, a subsection of Section 26, that sets out three factors that a tribunal has to take into account when deciding whether conduct has the effect of violating dignity or creating an intimidating, hostile, etc. environment. What are those three factors? Yeah, so the, the important things that one needs to take into account are whether it was reasonable for the conduct to have that effect. That's what's called the objective test. Then there's whether the individual felt or perceived the, the perception of the person involved, and that's what we call the subjective test. And then there's a catch-all, which is all the other circumstances. 
And so there's a case called Pemberton and Inwood from 2018, which sets out that an employment tribunal needs to look at this as a mixed test. So you have to look at conduct as on the basis of the subjective, that's the person's perception, but there is also a qualification of whether it was reasonable for the conduct to have that effect, and that's the objective. And that objective test is the thing which it sort of acts as the check and balance on conduct. It's what prevents an off-the-cuff word that makes someone cry amounting to harassment and law. And it sort of acts as that balance to, to make sure that some that people don't have too thin skin or I think there's a a phrase in one of the leading cases which talks about a culture of hypersensitivity. Now, I'm a bit reluctant uh, uh, to use those words because I, I think that that tends to be a court seeming quite patronizing and not understanding often how things can affect people. But anyway, there is that objective test that needs to be taken into account. So have you ever called anyone a snowflake in cross-examination, Paul Livingston? I have not and would not. <laughs> um, but I think that there's ways of trying to test whether something, whether it was reasonable for conduct to have that effect. Because one of the difficulties is that, as we've all experienced in any workplace, whether we're lawyers, HR professionals, or even just working somewhere, that people become entrenched in situations. And so by the time you're a year into having difficulties with your manager and your manager says something about you looking a bit tired, Whilst in any normal situation that might just be taken as, you know, a sympathetic word or even something that's a bit mean, but not, you know, a breach of the Equality Act, a year down the line that can make someone feel so upset and it can be related to their disability if they've got depression that's causing them to lose sleep or it can be related to their sex because inevitably women end up being told that they look tired in loads of situations where men don't. So there's all these things where um, it can fall under harassment, but but not definitely and not, not necessarily. But that's actually interesting. I mean, uh, let, let's explore this related to a protected characteristic point. I'm quite short. I'm five foot six. Now, if, if someone said to me, I've got small man syndrome, which I totally have, uh, somebody uh, that's probably going to be harassment, isn't it? Because it's, it's linked to sex. Yeah. But if somebody says to me, um, you know, you're, you're a little squib would that be unlawful harassment i don't think it would be because i don't think it would be related to any protected characteristic i think it's a mean comment but the way our equality act worked it works is that it ties everything to protected characteristics and i can't see how a little squid would be related to sex or any disability obviously if you did have a disability that meant that you hadn't grown or, or dwarfism or something like that, then that could be related to a protected characteristic, but in your context, I suspect it wouldn't be. Um, and so I think that that falls in the category of a bit mean, a bit cruel, but not unlawful. And I, and I think there's loads of things like that. And that's one of the reasons why it's difficult without understanding the law on this to actually know whether conduct is a breach of the law or not. Because the same comment that makes someone feel just as upset is only unlawful if it actually is tied into a protected characteristic. I mean, there's, there's pretty good scope and it takes a step back and it's probably beyond this for arguing that that's one of the problems with the Equality Act is it 
only criminalizes or, or it only makes conduct unlawful if it ties into a protected characteristic rather than it focusing on the, con- the, the content of it and the effect of it. Now, there's something really weird about the protected characteristics for harassment, which I only discovered a few years ago. I've been practicing for donkey's years, and I didn't know this till a few years ago. A few of the protected characteristics aren't covered, are they, when it comes to harassment? Yeah, so for some apparent reason that's not entirely clear to me, although I haven't trolled through the parliamentary debates on this, harassment is only unlawful if it's related to some of the protected characteristics. There's some which are excluded, which is pregnancy and maternity on the one hand and marriage or civil partnership status on the other hand. Now, I remember having a discussion with some colleagues about this. I think you may have been involved in it, Daniel, and there was some speculation as to whether the reason for that being excluded was that it was covered by other protected characteristics because any harassment about pregnancy or maternity would be very highly likely to be covered by sex. But it's not clear to me why, for example, harassment related to marriage or civil partnership isn't covered, aside from the possibility that it's not a big problem and so they didn't think it needed to be covered. I can't see why that doesn't fall within it. But I mean, either way, the the, the reasons for it being excluded are unclear, but I suspect that most of that sort of conduct still falls within one of the protected characteristics, which is included. So I suspect it's unlikely that... uh, a harassing employee is going to be saved by that. Didlaw is the only law firm in the UK specialising in disability discrimination and workplace health issues. Contact the experts for a free initial consultation. They're nice people, offering a quality service, giving practical advice. www.didlaw.com That's D I D L A www.didlaw.com You're listening to Employment Law Matters with me, Barrister Daniel Barnett. I'm speaking with Paul Livingstone from Outer Temple Chambers about harassment. Paul, under the legal definition of harassment in Section 26 of the Equality Act, the conduct by the employer or the manager or the colleague needs to be unwanted. Now, does the victim need to have made the perpetrator aware that the conduct was unwanted? No, they don't. So it can sometimes, in a lot of cases, it's pretty obvious whether something is unwanted. There's So one category of that is where somebody has made someone aware of it. So, you know, there's, I've done cases where somebody's given someone flowers and they text them and said that was inappropriate. And then they've continued to do things like that. That's obviously inappropriate and un- sorry, that's obviously unwanted, which is the, the crucial term. And then there's another category, which is inherently unwanted. And so that's things like sexual touching at the workplace or certain comments where what employment tribunals tend to do is just say, there's no need for anyone to show that you had to make them aware of that or that the person actually knew it was unwanted because it's just obvious to everyone that that's not on and that that's unwelcome or uninvited. But the context in which letting someone know about whether it is unwanted, the context in which that can be relevant is in a workplace where comments, innuendo and pranks and things like that are common. And there are obviously workplaces like that. I I suspect there's fewer than there were 
10, even five years ago. But there are still workplaces like that. And so if there is a culture of employees making lewd comments or making even um, racist comments to each other, then that can sometimes become relevant. So there's a case from 2010 called English and Thomas Sanderson where there was a pretty awful culture at that workplace and the claimant, the employee, had been participating actively in that. He'd been involved in name-calling, he'd even been involved in writing articles which were sexist ageist. Now this employee was the subject of a lot of homophobic abuse even though he was heterosexual. And during the period where he hadn't said that 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 was causing him any troubles or or that that was inappropriate, the Employment Tribunal and the Employment Appeal Tribunal thought that that sort of harassment was okay. However, at one point he made a written complaint and he asked for this sort of innuendo about sexuality to stop. And the Employment Tribunal, upheld by the Employment Appeal Tribunal, found that there was a tipping point, basically. And so that everything before that written complaint where, although he'd been subjected to what were objectively homophobic comments, because he'd been participating in similar comments that wasn't considered to be unwanted, but then after he'd made it very clear that it was unwanted, um, anything after that could amount to harassment. And so in that case, there was a sort of temporal line in the sand before which uh, something was fine, after which um, it wasn't because he'd made complaints about it. And, and there was a, a, another case called Smith and Ideal Shopping Direct, uh, where claimant was openly gay and had participated in some self-referential comments about his sexual orientation. And we see this quite a lot, Daniel, as, as you probably know, which is that employees who have certain protected characteristics particularly in workplaces where there's not a lot of people with those protected characteristics, they can often be involved in comments, discussions, and even what some might term banter about that um, protected characteristics. Now, we know in this more enlightened age that the reasons why people do that are often because it's too awkward for them to speak out and it can be a sort of uh, feeling like they have to do it in order to fit in. So whether it's women participating in sexist jokes or someone who's openly gay participating in, in homophobic jokes. Now, what's important to note is that that doesn't mean that they're receiving uh, sexist or homophobic comments isn't unwanted. There's, that case of Smith in the Employment Appeal Tribunal said a line could be drawn between conduct which the individual was agreeing to, so that might be comments which are broadly acceptable, and then crossing that line to deliberately insulting language. And as soon as it crosses that line, that can be harassment. So when looking at whether something is unwanted or not, it's important to look at the the whole context, but it's not that participating in a certain culture means that something can never become unwanted. The important thing to look at is at the time of the comments, had that environment changed so that it was obviously unwanted? The EHRC guidance, the Equality and Human Rights Commission, guidance on harassment actually gives a number of examples of unwanted conduct. And they include things like spoken words, banter, 
the phrase you used before, written words, graffiti, physical gestures, facial expressions, mimicry, aggression. I mean, I, I just think like, uh, yeah, the HRC has just written down the bleeding obvious in this list. But the, the very fact that they feel the need to write down that sort of screamingly obvious thing makes me think that maybe it's not obvious to all people. I think that's right. I think there can sometimes be an assumption that harassment has to be a comment or has to be a, a even touching when it comes to sexual harassment. And it is important to bear in mind that it doesn't. That, again, it might seem obvious to us, but facial expressions can be harassment. Gestures can be harassment. There's, there's been plenty of cases like that. Giving someone a gift, I mean, Employment lawyers and HR professionals dread secret Santas for this very reason, because inevitably in certain workplaces, secret Santa comes and there's a gift and that amounts to sexual harassment because it's some sort of horrible sex toy. And those type of things still happen. And it's important to know that that can be sexual harassment, that can be harassment. And so I think it's probably right that the HRC has got out the thesaurus and has is trying to think of every possible thing that can amount to unwanted conduct. But sadly, I think the reason for that is all of these sorts of things, graffiti, imagery, physical gestures, mimicry, jokes, pranks, gestures, can all be harassment and they probably all have happened in workplaces up and down the country. Moving on, Paul Livingston, the government recently consulted on changes to the law on sexual harassment in the workplace. And I think the report came out in, was it July 2021, just over a year ago? Yeah, that's right. And and it may be of interest to note that the ministerial foreword to that consultation was actually written by the then Equalities Minister, uh, Liz Truss. Oh, you've actually um, stolen my punchline. I was going to mention that in a couple of minutes. Because <laughs> it's not like she's been up to much well, recently. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I haven't heard much from her. No. What what did the government recommend? Yeah, so this was a, a pretty wide-ranging consultation on sexual harassment. By July 2021, we were, you know, about four years into the national, in fact, international conversation that was sparked by the hashtag MeToo um, trend and the I mean, hashtag MeToo actually started in 2006, but it was really the Harvey Weinstein allegations and the allegations which followed that in 2017, which sparked this international conversation about that. And since then, there were a number of papers written um, by the EHRC, by se several NGOs. And in 2020, the government finally launched a consultation on potential changes to the law on sexual harassment. And then, as you say, in July 2021, the government published its response. Now, although this was a consultation on sexual harassment, specifically because that was the thing which there was perceived to be a particular public concern about, as it transpired, based on the responses which the government received, it realised that actually approaching sexual harassment in a silo doesn't work for the law. And so what ended up happening is that the government responded to this consultation by announcing several things which it would change and a couple of things which it might change. And only really one of them was actually explicitly related to sexual harassment. The rest are more broad. So 
The first one, and the most eye-catching one, is that the government said that it intends to introduce a duty requiring employers to prevent sexual harassment. And the government said it believes that this will encourage employers into taking positive, proactive steps to make workplaces safer for everyone. Now, this was July 2020. As with all of these announcements that the government made, or promises, if you will, None of, nothing has actually been done legislatively about bringing them into practice. So we don't actually know what that duty is going to look like. But the government said that it was possible that with such a duty that you might have people being able to claim that the employer hadn't taken steps to prevent sexual harassment, even if there hadn't been any sexual harassment. But the government said, we don't quite fancy that. We're probably going to have to require an incident to take place first. Which begs the question, Daniel, what's the point? Because if an incident of sexual harassment has already taken place, you can make a claim for sexual harassment. The, the idea of making a claim for a failure to um, comply with a duty to prevent sexual harassment doesn't really add anything to it. But either way, that was, that was the first announcement. That was the most eye-catching one. But there's a couple of others which actually for employment law practitioners, if they were introduced, could potentially make an even bigger difference or actually make any difference, in fact. One was that the government announced that it was going to introduce explicit protections from third-party harassment. And you might remember, Daniel, this got a lot of press, particularly, I think it was in 2019, at the President's Club, which was a grim-sounding event where lots of quite wealthy, mostly bankers, uh, attended and there were waitresses who had all been hired and forced to sign NDAs whilst they were hired uh, on an agency basis and then had been subject to all sorts of horrible sexual harassment from the uh, people who were attending the dinner. Now the problem as you know Daniel is that at the moment there's no liability for that because an employer is only liable for actions of its own employees or workers. And so the idea that customers or attendees had sexually harassed someone, there was basically no liability for that, so no no avenue. And so the government have said they're going to introduce explicit protections from third-party harassment. They've said that they'll continue to work with stakeholders to help shape the protection. And again, they say particularly on whether it would only apply in situations which an incident of harassment has already occurred. But again... We don't really know what this is going to look like, and nothing has happened. I'm actually old enough, Paul Livingstone. Um, you're not. And some of the listeners will be old enough to remember the Bernard Manning case from the 1990s. Uh, and you remember Bernard Manning was a, a, a comedian um, who used to make uh, – his trademark was extremely offensive, racist, and sexist jokes. And he did a stand-up show at uh, the De Vere Hotel. I, I forget where, but um, somewhere in the north of England. And a two female black waitresses uh, were clearing the tables while he was on stage, and he made a number of, of extremely inappropriate comments, both on sexual grounds and also using some very unpleasant racial epithets to their faces. And they sued their employer, the hotel group, which employed them, and it was held that the um, hotel group wasn't liable because the racial abuser wasn't an employee of the Hotel group, Bernard Manning wasn't an employee of the hotel group. He was a subcontractor hired for the night. Uh, and that's actually what brought in this, this whole 
third party harassment debate and introduced the law, which subsequently got repealed, saying uh, three strikes and you're out. If an employer ignores third party harassment by somebody else who's not an employee three times or ignores it twice, the third time they're, li- they're vicariously liable for it. Did you ever have a case on those grounds? Because I had one or two and I found that totally unworkable. Uh, I didn't, but I think that, I mean, I think that the problem is that this is a tension we have with this government, frankly, which is that it has repealed, that this same government repealed the legislation on third party harassment because it said, actually, it's not a big problem that we don't need to prevent. And it's now announced it's going to introduce explicit provisions, but no one really has any idea what explicit provisions that would be workable would look like. I mean, do you, you said you had cases under the previous legislation which were basically unworkable. It's quite hard to envisage. I mean, it's an obvious gap in the law because I think most pub, most people think that the waitresses in your scenario at the Bernard uh, Manning, I was going to say Bernard Matthews, but that's the turkey guy. Uh, <laughs> I think were, they've both got similar yeah. physical attributes yeah but he's not we, we're not saying anything bad about the turkey guy he is not as far as we know uh being su- uh, subjecting people to harassment and i wouldn't want to suggest otherwise but the uh, in the bernard manning show and also in the president's club show i think most people would think that those waitresses are entitled to some sort of protection from someone and some sort of compensation from someone if they're subject to that harassment but at the moment the law doesn't provide for it and again it's just quite difficult to envisage how it really could. Really, the problem, I suspect, is that you have these different contractor relationships and the vicarious liability doesn't stretch to them. So, but- so I think another recommendation of the government consultation uh, response was a possible increase in the limitation period for bringing harassment claims from three months to six months. Has anything happened with that? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So, I mean, again, the answer is no, but the, um, that was one of the things they looked at. So again, this is a, this was a consultation on sexual harassment. The government looked at it in the context of sexual harassment. And there was a lot of people who responded to the consultation saying that the three month time limit was just too short. And there are particular reasons why it's too short in sexual harassment cases, which is that sexual harassment cases, there tends to be more barriers to disclosure. There's a greater likelihood of the sort of trauma or barriers to disclosure which inhibit disclosure within three months. But frankly, and this is what the government ended up concluding, is you couldn't really have a workable law which just increased the time limit for sexual harassment. Similarly, there was a consultation in the paper in the last few years on pregnancy and maternity discrimination, and the same issue arose, which is that three months in order to claim for pregnancy and maternity discrimination isn't enough. And so what the government said in response to this consultation on sexual harassment is that it would look at extending the time limit for all Equality Act claims from three months to six months. Now, the problem is, in its response, it said that the Employment Tribunal Services faced additional pressures due to COVID and that restoring its existing levels of service needed to be the priority before additional loading, which A, is an obvious non sequitur because I'm not convinced that increasing the time limit would result in any additional loading. In fact, it might actually reduce the burden of employment tribunals because you wouldn't have time taken up on these cases about time limits. But aside from that, if you have any announcement that's going to wait until the employment tribunal 
burden is reduced before introducing legislative change, I think we'll probably be back here in 2032 saying that there's been no change on that. So I don't think clearing the backlog can really take priority over this. I'm not sure that the two are frankly linked anyway. Um, but the government did sound quite positive about it during July 2021. You know, it said that they were confident that extending the time limit wouldn't create a disproportionate burden on business or hinder their ability to answer cases which go to tribunal. And it said that six months rather than any longer period, such as 12 months, was the right balance. But again, I alluded to it earlier. I think the problem with the possibility of this being introduced, although it was a paper that with the foreword by the current Prime Minister, Les Truss, the problem is that it seems to conflict a bit with the noises that this government makes about deregulation because it's something which makes people makes it easier for people to bring claims against their employer, which is exactly the thing that this government says it doesn't want to do. So yes, as to whether anything's been done, there's been no legislative change. A few weeks ago, the government told the big issue who were writing an article about this that it remains committed to preventing sexual harassment in the workplace. In March 2022, the government responded um, to an announcement that it was ratifying an international treaty by saying that it plans to go further and will introduce a new duty on employers and introduce explicit protections for employees from harassment by third parties. So we know that the government, in everything it said, keeps saying that it's going to introduce these changes but hasn't done anything about it. There's a company that specialises in recruiting HR people. Uniquely, Recruitment HR is run by practising HR people who really understand HR. So if you're looking to fill an HR role, or you're looking to find one, visit www.recruitmenthr.co.uk. That's www.recruitmenthr.co.uk. You're listening to Employment Law Matters with me, Barrister Daniel Barnett. I'm speaking with Paul Livingston from Outer Temple Chambers on sexual harassment. Uh, Paul Livingston, a moment ago, we were discussing issues relating to third-party harassment and, and an employer's liability for the acts of third parties. I want to shift very slightly to talk about the employer's wider liability for the acts of its employees. So if we were both employed by the same company, and I harassed you or you harassed me, Section 109 of the Equality Act says that the employer is automatically liable for anything done by one of its employees in the course of their employment. But there's a defence, and it's called the statutory defence. It says that if the employer has taken all reasonable steps, I emphasise all, not some reasonable steps, all reasonable steps to prevent that type of harassment, or discrimination, then the employer won't be automatically liable for the acts of its employees. Now, no one really knows what this means. In your experience, what reasonable steps can and should an employer take that will cause a tribunal to say, okay, you're not going to be liable for that totally egregious and disgusting harassment done by one of your employees on another? Yeah, it's a good question. This is a defence which most practitioners see pleaded and argued at least half-heartedly in lots of harassment claims, but is very, very rarely successful. I've certainly never been involved in a case 
where it has been successful. But there is a recent case about it which talks about how we should analyze the steps that an employer took. And there's also pretty good guidance now which sets out really what an employer should do and, and what I think an employer can do in order to successfully rely on, on that defense. So the recent cases, um, Ali and Galen from 2021, and it says that the analysis needs to be what preventative steps the employer took, where are they reasonable, and then where are there any further steps that the employer could have taken which were reasonably practicable. Now, in that case, the Employment Appeal Tribunal said something which is useful, I think, from a policy context, which is the purpose of this defence is to encourage employers to take significant and effective action to combat discrimination. So the defence is available, but only to employers that can show that all reasonable steps to prevent harassment have been taken. And so I think from a policy perspective, what everyone should be looking at this on the basis of is that the Employment Tribunal, the, the, the Equality Act, is giving employers an opportunity to take all reasonable steps, significant and effective action, and if it does, it should be able to rely on the defence. And so, as to the reasonable steps that can be taken, there's some obvious ones. So the first one is having a policy for acceptable behaviour, complaints, and how it will be dealt with, and it's important to ensure that that policy specifically covers the various different types of harassment, whether that's racial harassment and discrimination, sexual or on the grounds of sex, disability, etc. Because in that case of Ali that I was talking about, there was some training and a policy. In fact, there was a policy which the employer said showed that they were taking reasonable steps to combat uh, discrimination and harassment, but actually it made basically no reference to race discrimination or harassment, and it was just a generic policy. I mean, in that case, there was an anti-bullying and harassment procedure. It only referred to harassment in the title, and thereafter only referred to bullying. And so the important thing on those policies are they have to actually be good, and they have to actually properly refer to the different types of harassment and discrimination. And there's loads of good material out there. If you're rewriting your policy, there's loads of good material out there from the EHRC. I think maybe even from Daniel Barnett. I'm not sure. But, <laughs> I, I, uh, I actually do put together these suites of policies, but they're, uh, the latest one's a little out of date now. I think it dates back to 2020. So um, I wouldn't recommend anyone actually buy it because it's quite out of date. But I will be doing a new one next year. Excellent. Good. That, that's a good opportunity for a plug. So, but but the, yeah, so that, that's the policy. And similarly, training. Now, most employers have some sort of diversity training is the broad way I'm going to put it. Most of it is rubbish and most of it uh, is too infrequent. The, when an employment tribunal is looking at all reasonable steps, it is going to expect training, which is regular. And that, so that means not just an online course when the employee starts. It means making sure that that training is refreshed. There's no specific time, but I would be saying every couple of years at, at, at most and making sure that it, it is thorough, that it covers the different types of discrimination and harassment and that making sure that it's mandatory as well. It's no use an employer saying that we offer training on these things if it doesn't require employees and especially managers to actually do it. And there has to be some way, I would say, 
of ensuring that that training is actually being taken into account. So whether it's a quiz at the end of it or some sort of quiz at the beginning of the next training, if you can point to having done a quiz or anything like that and your employees having scored well, you can show that you've done decent training that's actually stuck with people. The next step is a complaints process that actually works. It's not good enough, I would say, for a big employer to say, we have a whistleblowing hotline, people can call it. Actually, we've only had one call in the last five years. That probably shows there's no harassment or a massive employer. That's almost never the case. If you've got a whistleblowing hotline, you don't have any calls. It's not because you don't have any harassment. It's because people don't know about the hotline or they're afraid to use the hotline. So have a complaints process, tell people about the complaints process and encourage people to use it if they need to. If you are an employer and nobody is complaining about things that are happening in your uh, workplace, that is a bad thing. You want to know about what is going wrong and you want to be able to deal with it like that. And the employment tribunal is going to expect that you have made those things uh, clear to people. The final really important thing that an employer can do is take action when complaints arise. It is no use having great training, great policies, even a great complaints process if every time someone makes a complaint, no disciplinary action is taken. Because an employment tribunal is going to want to look and say, did you take all reasonable steps to prevent harassment? And one of those reasonable steps has to be showing that if an employee harasses someone, there will be disciplinary action. So those are what I would say the key steps are. But the importance is it can't just be training or policies or any of this in name only. It has to be thorough. It has to be regular. I mean, that all sounds like a a lot of work for an employer. Um, And many companies might say, well, we're fundamentally in business to, to make profit. Do you think there are organizations, Paul Livingston, that take a conscious decision to take the hit every couple of years on a 50 grand harassment claim rather than invest this huge amount of time and money in doing enough to establish the statutory defense? I suspect it's not a conscious decision, but I suspect that that decision is taken. I think it's a nonsense one, frankly, because I think that people overestimate the amount of time and money that actually has to be spent on this stuff. Policies can, again, it does not take a huge amount of work for you as an employer to develop a good policy on this and to refresh it fairly regularly. If you have any sort of HR department, even if it's just one person, they should be able to do that and get the help needed to do that. Similarly with training, I'm not talking about a full day's worth of training on harassment and discrimination every year. I'm talking about making sure there's a couple of hours every couple of years, refreshing people on what they need to do and what they can't do. Because I just just don't think that costs that much. I think if anyone was making that conscious decision, Daniel, it's a rubbish one. But I appreciate that it can seem like quite a burden. But I think that, you know, one of the reasons for doing this sort of training and having these policies is to give yourself a defense to harassment claim. The better reason is that it's going to reduce the amount of harassment of your business. Uh, no employer should surely want people to be feeling harassed. You'll lose talent. You'll have an unhappy culture. It's, 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 it's just a bad recipe for a workplace. Paul Livingston, uh, just to follow on from that and indeed to wrap up this episode, 
You mentioned confidential whistleblowing lines. A lot of people who think they may have been subjected to discrimination or harassment will be terribly unsure. They'll, they'll worry that they're misinterpreting the signs or they're being unduly sensitive. How should an employer deal with an employee who wants to raise something anonymously or privately and doesn't want to take it official? Yeah, so there's a couple of different options that. So one is where an employee or someone else makes a complaint or raises a concern and says to the employer, I'm telling you this, but I don't want my name to be used anywhere for, for whatever reason. In that context, it's really important. The employer needs to take it seriously still. And the things that they should do are take written statements if possible so that that written statement can then be anonymized and used look for any corroborative evidence and also ask questions about the person's motives for making that complaint. The key message is if you receive an anonymous complaint, you still have to act on it, but you have to take extra steps to ensure there's fairness to the person who's subject to that complaint. And so there's a case called Linfood Cash and Carry and Thompson back in 1989, but which still holds pretty true, which basically says all of that stuff and says that it's really important to get that evidence in writing, make a decision about what to do about it. And ideally, the decision maker should personally interview the complainant, even if they want to remain anonymous. And if it's possible for the alleged perpetrator to submit questions in writing, to test that account, then that should be possible. So that's one way of operating. And that's if the employee comes to the employer and says, I want to make this complaint, but I want to remain anonymous. There's the other context, which is for employers that have anonymous whistleblowing lines or have something like Talk to Spot, an anonymous reporting tool, the employer itself might not know the identity of the complainant. That makes it even more difficult. But again, it's still really important that the employer takes it seriously and investigates. If there's any way of communicating with that anonymous complainant, the employer should do should seek further information, possibly asking questions. But if, an, if it's an anonymous complainant and there's no way for the employer to communicate with them, it will be very difficult to take disciplinary action just on that complaint alone. So looking for corroborative evidence, again, is the really important thing to do. And logging everything, because it might be that you get one anonymous complaint this year and you can't take disciplinary action, but then the following year when someone makes a complaint about the same person, and we all know that this happens, we all know that the same people can be subject to complaints from multiple sources. When you put them together, you might have a case for disciplinary action. And again, Daniel, the really important thing with this from my perspective is that employers need to be thinking about Taking action against alleged perpetrators of harassment is not just to protect yourself legally. It's not just to try and uh, avoid a potential employment tribunal claim. It's because you do not want people in your workplace harassing other people. If you want to seek Paul Livingston's advice or instruct him for any tribunal litigation, you can do so uh, via www.outertemple.com or contact his clerks on 020-7353-6831. Paul Livingston, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Daniel. 
In next week's episode, I'm going to be discussing reasonable adjustments with Kate Lee of Didlaw. Before I go, let me mention again the Virtual Employment Law Academy, which starts on the 11th of October. It's an 18-module course delivered entirely online, so you can learn when you want, how you want. I present one module each week live over Zoom on a Tuesday morning. It's two hours long each Tuesday, typically an hour of me going through the topic we're studying, and then an hour of interactive discussion on Zoom where we drill down into some of the trickier issues, and you can question me if there's anything you haven't quite got to grips with. Every module is supported by a workbook. There are four workbooks in total covering the 18 modules. They give you the outline content broken down with details about the cases I cover and with lots of room for you to take notes. Every alternate week, we have small group tutorials. You'll be assigned to a small supportive tutorial group of about eight to 12 colleagues with a specialist tutor and your tutor will take you through case studies arising from the topics studied in the previous two weeks modules and you'll be able to work through real-life case studies exploring how what you've learned applies in real life. At the end of the course, you can choose to receive a formal CPD qualification. We offer an assessment process which involves you completing two written assignments based on a case study we'll give you, which we mark and give you detailed feedback on. Assuming you pass both assessments, you'll receive a formal nationally recognized CPD qualification. As well as all that, you get access to our online community exclusively for those who are part of the Virtual Employment Law Academy. We've got online forums for the different modules, such as dismissal, discrimination, working time, employment status, and others, where you can post questions, and I'll be in the group helping out. You can learn much, much more at www.virtualemploymentlawacademy.com, including full details of all 18 modules and breakdowns of the different packages available. But do remember to act quickly. The course starts in three weeks' time, and registration closes in about two and a half weeks. Thank you for listening. I'm Barrister Daniel Barnett. I'll speak to you next week. Any information on this podcast is for general guidance only. Always seek legal advice. Please see full terms at www.danielbarnett.co.uk forward slash podcast terms.